Hello and welcome to Fragments of Fear, a podcast celebrating the lesser discussed shyly. I'm Rachel Nisbet and with me my co-host Peter Eamstall. So how are we today Peter? Good? I'm good. I had a cold last time we recorded so hopefully I won't have to spend time editing out the coughs like I did. Yeah it's a bit of a nightmare yeah. and I've been you've, you were it, sick doing that one and I was sick in between that one and this one so hopefully by the next podcast we're both back up to full health and we're not coughing. And <laughs> Exactly. Fingers crossed. <laughs> so what have you been up to since last time? Have you seen any any films? Um, yeah I've seen a couple probably not that reputable at the weekend I was watching like well my husband sometimes he'll get like like you know italian tv on demand and stream it to the tv so uh yeah. he just picks some random films because he's not really into into jelly but i like to watch some of the comedies and action stuff so we watched uh the bruno matai um film cop game from 1988 oh, which was uh yeah just kind of what you'd expect really very 80s kind of set in what's well, supposed to be set at the end of vietnam but curly is in and lots of reused footage and questionable stuff going on but yeah it was enjoyable <laughs> Um, and then I think we followed that up with uh, a Thomas Millian film called, is it Delito Formula? You know? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so that was uh, kind of a comedy style film. That was good fun as well. So, yeah, that's what I've kind of been watching lately. Nothing too interesting. But, yeah, just stuff that I might not have come across before that you just find on these channels. Yeah, it's good. You can find some good stuff streaming every every now and then. Yeah, because I think like with us, we tend—I suppose—we gravitate towards Italians. Well, we do other genres as well, but I think like I'm less likely to seek out like an Italian comedy film by myself. So yeah, you can kind of find these things uh, when you're perusing the TV, which is yeah. always good. Uh, what about you then? What have you been watching? Anything a bit more highbrow? Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure if I'd say highbrow, but it's it's difficult because starting this pod has meant that my already sort of limited time to watch films has dwindled even further and i'm, I'm spending my time doing rewatches and, and stuff but i managed to, um, to sneak away to the stockholm film festival oh great uh, and see a few films so i watched richard stanley's um, return color of space oh well yeah color out of space even <laughs> Uh, which I really liked, and The Lodge, the Hammer production by the same team who uh, directed Goodnight Mummy. Um, you've seen that? I've seen Goodnight Mummy, but not seen the new one. I wasn't that keen on The Lodge, to be honest. It looked great, and you can't really fault it from any sort of production aspect, mm-hmm. but I had some problems with, with the premise, and much like Goodnight Mummy, for me, it didn't really connect. So it was good to see it on big screen, but not really for me. Just a bit disappointing, really. Yeah, well, not not disappointing. Yeah, I suppose a little bit. Yeah, but just, yeah, that kind of thing where, I don't know, it's not, it doesn't well you, does it? It just it is what it is. Yeah, and we've had a bit of good news concerning director we discussed last time. Ah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so we had quite interesting news following on from our last podcast where we talked about So Sweet, So Perverse, the Umberto Lenzi film. Um, so 88 Films announced a couple of weeks ago that they are releasing Umberto Lenzi's um, third film with Carol Baker, Quiet Place to Kill from 1970, which is also known as Paranoia, which there was a wee bit of confusion on social media about it because I think a few people a yeah, thought it was Orgasmo. Well, I say they thought it was Orgasmo. The Orgasmo poster was used, so... I think it was in the use because it's called Paranoia. I think people just assumed that was the version of Paranoia when it's this version of Paranoia. Um, yeah. So yeah, a little bit of confusion there, but that's really good news. I mean, I know there's a German release already of A Quiet Place to Kill, but I think this makes it certainly more accessible as a film to other people. And I know those German releases are quite expensive, especially if you live outside of Germany or Europe. So this yeah. would be a good way of people being able to see um, some more of Lindsay's early Jali without forking out loads of money. So I think that is coming out 
in February, the end of February, but these things were subject to change. Yeah. Um, And they're also releasing uh, Brothers Till We Die, which is another Lenzi film, Plutsioteki, but that's going to be probably in February as well. And then Lumberto Bava's 1980 horror film, Macabre. So that's what's upcoming from 88 Films. Yeah, I think there's some good stuff coming out there. And hopefully it won't be too long before we get to see um, Orgasmo and So Sweet, So Perverse on disc as well. Yeah, I think it's certainly... Be great. Yeah, because it's certainly illustrated that people want to see it because a lot of people are quite disappointed. So hopefully, you know, 88 Films or another label will pick up on that and realise that there is quite a demand for it. Because I'm sure the rights are out there. I've heard things about them. I think they might be a bit expensive, but if you can get enough people to buy it, it shouldn't be an issue. So fingers crossed on that one. Definitely. And some other news from Vinegar Syndrome as well. Yeah. So Vinegar Syndrome are releasing the French Sex Murders. I suppose, again, it's another lesser known one. Uh, It had a release in... God, when was the release? It must have been a long time ago now. 2000s? Yeah, it was quite a while back. And that was by Mondo Macabre, so... That'll be that's kind of long overdue release because I think it goes for well it did go for silly money at one point I remember seeing it going for like eighty quid and stuff online. Yeah, I know it's been out of print for a long time, and that was DVD only, and this will be Blu-ray, obviously. So it'll be nice and cleaned up. So that's quite an exciting release because well, it's not like we've talked about it before. It's not one of our favourites, but it's just always nice to kind of see something of that nature get released on Blu-ray because it's unexpected compared to some of the other titles that you'd expect to see over it. So yeah, it's always good. Yeah, and they're teasing that they're doing a, a Jello set as well, Vinegar Syndrome, so that would be interesting to see what, what will be in that. Yeah, exactly, because there's still so many of these types of films that haven't seen a release, so lots of speculation going around about those, those films. Yeah, we'll have to wait and yes, see, I guess. we'll have to wait and see. But we thought, yeah, on the podcast, we'll maybe kind of inform you of upcoming releases just in case you've missed them on social media because I know not everyone's on Twitter all the time and it's easy to miss these things. So we'll try and keep you abreast of what's coming out. In terms of Jello, yeah. yeah. It's it's quite difficult to keep up because there are quite a few labels now as well. So Yeah, and different language editions and things because sometimes, like, you know, the German edition will have the English track, sometimes they won't. Sometimes people don't really care, like they'll buy it regardless for the cleaned up image or whatever. So yeah we'll try our best to kind of keep you informed but we might miss some things and then you can email us if you want to tell us that we've missed it and we'll do it in the next show right so before we move on to the film should we just mention that as always we'll be discussing all aspects of this episode's film so if you're sensitive about spoilers you you might want to source a copy of the film watch it and listen to the episode yes and with that said should we Shall we let people know which film we're going to talk about? Yes, we've previously talked about a 1960s Shiloh with So Sweet, So Perverse. Um, and then we did our first episode on a post-Golden Period entry, somewhat deviated from the genre's established tropes and with autopsy. So we thought it would probably be a good time to actually do a Golden Period um, Shiloh. So we've decided to do Sergio Pastore's 1972 Shiloh, a.k.a. Crimes of the Black Cat. <laughs> Someone's tailing me. I know who killed Paula Whitney and the others. The autopsy showed Paula Whitney died of failure of the cardiocirculatory system. Well, all that is is... Nothing more than a simple heart attack. No! Just what are these suspicions you have? Please, can't you come here? I'm afraid. Follow her, Burton. Try to find out who she is and where she lives. The black cat has nine lives. Nine lives to take. So what is the reason why we've chosen this? Well, I guess, yeah, we've chosen it just because it is like 
a golden period entry and we know they're probably the most popular jelly out there so we thought it'd be good to focus on one that's from that period but less known and also because it's so heavily inspired by the work of Dario Argento that we thought it'd be of interest because so many people are fans of Argento's work that it's nice to see a film that I was going to say references his work but probably go a wee bit further kind of lifts parts of his work into it. Yeah, yeah, I'd say it's a fairly well-known title. I mean, it's been available on on at least a mediocre-looking English-friendly DVD from Tagared that was released in two thousand and five, and it's also had a a better-looking Italian edition by Federal Video, but that DVD lacks English options, and they're both compromised in, in terms of aspect ratio. So this is sort of long overdue for a, for an upgrade. Yeah, and it's also one of those films that quite a few people wanted us to talk about as well when we asked which which films they wanted to see us do. Yeah, it's certainly one of the Charlie that has more of a following that's not got not had a Blu-ray release in recent years. So it's obviously popular. Well, I say it's obviously popular. It's it is it does seem fairly popular. I know it has its critics, but it is one that people are interested in anyway. I feel like the the name is mentioned quite often, mm-hmm. but I don't see it discussed in sort of in depth all that much. No, and I think the name alone is maybe partly why people who haven't seen it are interested in it because it does have a good Jalo-esque name. Again, very Argento-like. Yeah, it takes quite a few boxes in terms of, of what you expect from a genre. Yeah, so we've obviously talked about films that aren't very trope-heavy um, in our last two podcast episodes, but this one is going to be a lot more traditional as a genre, which will either kind of appeal to you or you might be a bit like old hat on it, but still. Yeah, so do you want to put it into context a little bit on, on when it was released and what had led up to, to this point? So if you've listened to our previous episodes, um, you've already heard us discuss the genre's boom post the release of Dario Argento's 1970 Jalo, The Bird of the Crystal Plumage. Crimes of the Black Cat is very much in this vein. It's a direct response to the popularity of Argento's early Jalo, and we can see that with the film's Italian numerical title, uh, which translates to Seven Shells of Yellow Silk, and the English animal-related title, Crimes of the Black Cat. So they both draw comparisons with Argento's 1971 Jalo, Cat and Nine Tales. So it very much kind of follows on from the success of those films. So the film is really courting that new audience who are very much into this new form of Italian thriller, and they've been big fans of um, Argento's kind of early Jalo. So this is where other directors, such as Pastore and other people, have come in and decided to put their own stamp on the genre and come up with fairly derivative titles. Yeah, Definitely. I mean, there was an avalanche of films trying to sort of appease the audience's appetite for more thrillers, and quite a few 60s thrillers were were re-released as well during during the early 70s. Mm-hmm. And like you said, the animal titles. And I just had a quick look through, and like obviously most people know these titles, but Elicit in a Woman's Skin, Human Cobras, Black Belly of the Tarantula, Case of the Scorpion's Tail, Iguana with the Tongue of Fire, Bloodstained Butterfly. In the Eye of the Hurricane was actually called La Volpe della Coda di Veluto, The Fox with a Velvet Tail in Italy, and Short Night of Glass Dolls was originally La Corte Notte delle Farfalle, but that was changed due to The Bloodstained Butterfly, I believe. Yeah. So, so they certainly brought out those animal titles. Yeah, they're they? very rife at the time, so obviously popular to yeah. kind of include that and like the numerical element as well, as we said. And these are all films yeah. that are coming up very much at the the early the first few years of the decade. So it kind of goes to show how prevalent the Italian thriller was during this period. Just so many films yeah. coming out at once. So if you were heading to the cinema and saw a film with either a numerical title or an animal in the title, you knew that you were in for a thriller. And it's what it's when you think about that period of time as well. It's not like nowadays where it's really easy to kind of see what a film is about. It's a lot of the time people were just going based on you know title. Yeah, 
Exactly, title, or or it possibly seen like an ad mat in the paper, mm-hmm. or a, a look and Dina in front of the cinema, but not much more than yeah, that. Yeah, and I guess that's why we've got these kind of you know the similarity in terms of names or look and Dina, like you know, so people have that association. Um, so obviously, it's playing yeah. off against that. Should we talk a little bit about Sergio Pastore? Yes. Because he's a director that's not really talked about much, is he? You don't really hear much about Sergio. I didn't really know anything about him, to be honest, before doing the research for this episode. And I mean, he's seldom discussed, as you say, and perhaps even less seen. According to the IMDb, he directed around a, a dozen films or so. But Crimes of the Black Cat stands out as his most high-profile project, really. Mm-hmm. He was born in Cosenza in Calabria on November 25th, 1932. And he moved to Naples to attend university at the law faculty, but instead ended Ended up working as a journalist. Surprise, surprise, another one. <laughs> yeah, surprise, surprise, yet another journalist. Not intentional. Yeah, on our part, yeah, yeah, definitely. But it's interesting to see how many how many directors have actually got a background in journalism. Yeah, it's absolutely fascinating. So he was a correspondent for, for the newspaper Paese Sera, and he covered everything from like the Camorra to entertainment news. And his father was a banker, was transferred to Rome in the late 50s. At this time, it was the Mecca of cinema, obviously, and Sergio became involved in the film business and he was working as a publicist and a press agent for quite a few people, including George Willett or George Arderson, who he had a, a long professional relationship with. He wrote a, even wrote a book about his experiences as a press agent, the press agent, which apparently has even got a preface written by Carol Baker. Oh, wow, really? And he was knee-deep in La Dolce Vita era and he, at one time he was actually married to Aisha Nana, the Lebanese-born Turkish actress who was the centre of a, a scandalous striptease uh, at the Rugatino restaurant in 1958, oh. which was an inspiration for a similar sequence in Fellini's La Dolce Vita. That's fascinating. Oh. So, yeah, and um, and she appeared in a few other jelly as well. And the two got married in a way and had a daughter. Later on in the 60s, Pastore started a production company, Messo Giorno Nuovo d'Italia, and he wrote and directed low-budget films. And apparently, and I found this a little bit difficult to find info about it, but apparently his debut is a a lost 1967 giallo called Omosidio a Sangue Freddo, which uh, apparently starred Rita Calderoni in a debut. That, I found that quite interesting. Yeah, it's really interesting. It's just frustrating because you hear films like that and you think, like, what happened? You just want to know more. It's frustrating. Yeah, I was really surprised to find out about that, but it would have been would be quite cool to see that. It'd be great. I know that's the thing. It's frustrating because you just hear about all these wonderful, well, not wonderful, but, you know, films that are of interest to people like us and then just yeah never come to be really never find them or they're lost yeah whatever way um yeah no but saying that jello showed up so i guess all hope is not lost yeah no that's true what was it it was like or mania mania there's a story about a fabio testi one being filmed in a basement that was waterlogged or something Uh people thought it was lost yeah so you you never know what's lying in people's basements and i suppose a lot of people involved with these films are still alive and one day someone will clear their stuff out and either take it to the tip or give it to someone who might be able to salvage it but yeah never say never um, but no, that's really yeah, interesting. Exactly. I like it when you uncover, because you do that quite a bit, you uncover all these things about films that never got made, and it's information that just isn't really out there anywhere, is it? You really have to kind of dig deep yeah. into the archives to find it. You do have to. I'm just thinking, though, I don't know if I've seen any of Sergio's other films. 
Oh no, that's a lie. I saw that. Is it Apocalyptian Terremoto? Exactly. I was looking for that for ages, like for years, and I finally managed to get it. I was quite happy about it. I've not watched it. I don't understand Italian, obviously, so it's... It's very dialogue heavy. It's, it's actually very voiceover heavy. Mm-hmm. It's it's not brilliant. No. It's got quite... I think the concept's intriguing, but the film itself, perhaps... It's an intriguing concept, but it, it's lacking in execution. Yeah, exactly, yeah. I don't know, it's hard. He's one of those directors that's maybe hard to recommend to people because it's not like he, you can go through his filmography like other directors of the period and unpick... I don't mean in a nasty way, but, you know, like, it's not... You wouldn't go, oh, I'm going to seek out all of his films. No, yeah, you can't find them because I tried some, let's say, less legal channels and I could only find four of his films, which is nothing. Really. No, it's not. Especially, like, what well, this is one of them, I take it, as well. Yeah, it's this one, Delitti, and one of his post-crimes of the Black Cats comedies. Yeah, it's just, it's just, frust- it's just frustrating, isn't it? It's, it's not even just, you know, Italian films. It's any, like, genre of film or an actor or a director. When you start to try and seek out their whole filmography, it's fine kind of post-90s, I'd say, but even, like, 80s, you're, there's films that I really struggle to find even any mention of and you just you don't know where you'd ever no, find them no I agree it's, if it's difficult to find them now I can only imagine what it's going to be like in like 40-50 years it's going to be impossible to I know find. and it's like it's hard enough sometimes even finding things that have been put on VHS if it's not even been put on VHS it's like you, have, yeah. you feel like you have no hope well, you're, more, you're more or less doomed yeah unless like I found this with, like when I've been looking for like French films that there's quite a lot of people that just seem to have the rights to them so they must have them but they're just never gonna yeah. like put them out so no. what do you do <laughs> Nothing really. <laughs> Rob them. Yeah. yeah. You sit and dream about these upcoming releases that we're never oh, going to yeah. see. You never know, maybe one day. You never know, yeah. In 1968, he directed a, a Western called Chrysanthemums for a Bunch of Swine, which I think is that a brilliant That is absolutely name. brilliant. I love that. It's such a good title. <laughs> yeah, and an erotic anthology film called Il Diario Probito di Fanni in 1965, where his wife-to-be, Giovanna Lenzi, who we'll get back to later, I'm sure, mm-hmm. stars as four different women all named Fanny. And uh, neither of these films were particularly successful. They, they probably made their small budget back, but not much more than that. It seems to be like a reoccurring theme for Pastore because his films received little distribution and hence they didn't do well but for some reason in early 1972 he teamed up with producer Edmondo Amati to do Crimes of the Black Cats and that ended up being his most well-known and also most financially successful film and Amati was like Luciano Martino who we discussed in the last episode was a really prolific genre film producer who got his start in the 60s and he produced westerns and James Bond inspired thrillers and worked extensively with Lucio Fulci and produced six of his films, including One on Top of the Other and Elicit in a Woman's Skin. And Amati also works a lot with the Castellari family, both Enzo and his father Marino and Alberto de Martino and Dino Risi. And he also produced other thrillers like Julia Book's Murder by Music and um, The Great Swindle. And he also produced Let's Sleep in Corpses Lie and Atlantis Interceptors. And we can only sort of speculate just how the script Crimes of the Black Cat came about. It's credited to Pastori and Sandro Continenza and Giovanni Simonelli. Continenza and Simonelli had worked together twice on earlier Amato productions. They had both worked with a producer on several locations on their own as well, writing spy thrillers and westerns, before writing this to capitalise on Argento's successful debut. Which really leads us up to the film, I suppose. So do you want to give us a, a synopsis of the film? Yes. One night while sitting in a pub, blind pianist Peter Oliver hears two indistinct voices discuss blackmail and murder. That very night his former girlfriend Paula Whitney is killed in the fashion house where she worked as a model, headed by Mrs. Francois Bailly and her husband Victor. 
The murders of a photographer who was blackmailing Victor, as well as other models, put Oliver on the trail of the maniac. Through a drug-addicted accomplice, the murderer sends the victims a yellow shawl and a basket with a black cat inside it. The shawls are dipped with a liquid that unleashes the cat against the victims, causing their death with its deadly scratches. Will Peter find out who the murderer is before it's too late? I think that sums it up really well. So should we do a little rundown of the plays before we continue? Yeah, we'll talk a wee bit about who's involved in the production. So first up, we've got Anthony Stephan, who plays the main protagonist, the blind composer Peter Oliver. There are quite a few actors who've had interesting lives, but Stephan's biography is pretty unbeatable, <laughs> really. Um, he was born Antonio Quiz de Tefo van Hornholz at the Brazilian Embassy in Rome in 1930. He came from a family of noble blood originating from Prussia. Wow. He fought with the Italian partisans against the Nazis while he was a teenager during World War II. And he got into the film business in the 50s and had his breakthrough as, a, as an actor in Spaghetti Westerns in, in the 60s and made quite a few films and he made quite a few jelly as well. The Night Evelyn Came Out of the Grave, The Tropic of Cancer, The Killer with a Thousand Eyes, Evil Eye, Play Motel. And then when he retired from the business, he moved to Rio de Janeiro in 1981. And he seems to have lived a jet-set lifestyle up until his death in, in lung cancer at the age of 74 in 2004. Very much like the characters he played then. Yeah, he seems to have been a bit of a playboy character, and that's I think that's why he works quite well in those type of roles. Yeah, it's personal experience with that one. There's something like uh, the night. It's funny when you you said say that because then you think of something like the night that everyone came out the grave and think about him playing like an almost noble man or uh, a man a society man, and then you find out that he actually was. That's interesting. Yeah, what's your opinion of him as as an actor? Um, I think he always performs his roles well, and I actually really like him in this film. I'd say it's one of my favorite performances of his but he's just he's not what somebody that I would put as one of my favorite actors in the genre like he's competent he's able to play those kind of roles but I mean it's a bit like uh Giacomo Rossi Stewart they kind of you know they tend to play those those similar roles and sometimes they do them well and quite frequently but they don't really stand out too much at times no I think it's definitely fair I think it works really well in certain roles I think it works really well in The Night Evelyn Came Out of mm-hmm. the Grave for example when, when you're not quite sure if he's the killer or not but he didn't have fantastic range and yeah. I think sometimes people say Wooden and I'm, I'm not sure if I'd agree with Wooden but he gives the impression of being a bit like disinterested almost <laughs> Yeah, no, it's a really good way of putting it. Because I think, you know, other actors that kind of worked in those similar roles, you know, the ones that we were fans of, you know, like George Hilton, or I know he didn't do as many, like, but Fabio Testi or someone, they they have a lot of charisma. And I think charisma yeah. kind of carries you a fair bit. But I feel Anthony Stephan sometimes, yeah, doesn't quite have that charisma at times. And yeah, it does feel a bit like he's bored in his performance. Yeah, a bit, he comes off as a bit sullen. And I mean, sometimes these parts weren't, weren't all that much meat to it. So you had to bring something else mm-hmm. to the role. And he doesn't always do that. But in some roles, he works really well. But I think, like you say, I think he works... I think it works fairly well in this in this. And perhaps role. that's because he does have something a bit more challenging to work with in terms of his character and his yeah. um, disability. We also have Silvia Cassina as Françoise Ballet. Uh, she was a Yugoslavian-born Italian actress who appeared in several gialli as well as lots of Italian genre cinema, uh, such as So Sweet, So Dead, 
Sex of the Devil, The Great Swindle, which you mentioned earlier, Lisa and the Devil, The Student Connection, and Delito de Torre. But she's probably best known for a role in the Hercules films. But she also appears in a lot of more kind of what people might perhaps say are like more re- reputable um, earlier Italian comedies. Um, and she typically played um, socially upwardly mobile women, uh, which is rather interesting considering her lavish overspending in her real life, which led to the selling of her palatial home. So it's kind of funny that we see kind of these similarities between Sylvia and Anthony from the characters that they played and the lifestyles that they lived. Yeah, um, yeah other other films that she appeared in that might be of note are Fellini's Juliet of the Spirits. Um, she was in the Euro Spy film, Deadlier in the Mail, and Georges Franju's Judux. It's quite a varied career, really. She wasn't just kind of constrained to quite pulpy genre type films. She did a fair few things. No, she was quite versatile. She's one of those actresses. I mean, she could appear in a role and you'd hardly know it was her. Yeah, that's a good, yeah, a good way of putting and, it. And she is not all that often that she got centre stage. Often, sort of more character acting in a bit. Yeah, because yeah, no, because when you mention when you mention the films that she's been in, you kind of have to think a bit about oh, who was she in that? Because she's never typically yeah the main star. Yeah. Sometimes you can have more of a prolific career playing those smaller roles, and sometimes they're more interesting. Yeah. No, I, I really like her. I think she's always. I think she's always good. Certainly, yeah. And next up, Jacobo Rossi-Stewart, who plays Victor Morgan, Francoise's partner. And this Umbrian-born actor is another easily recognisable face to all fans of Eurocult. And I'm not sure what you'd say his most well-known role is. I'd say probably Barva's Kill, Baby Kill. Yeah, I think that'd be fair. But it's saying another actor that you wouldn't really maybe associate with a particular film. Other than that, no. yeah, that would be the one if you did. Yeah, exactly. And he appeared in a fair number of Jelly as well, but often in sort of supporting roles and never really the, the main leading man uh, in these other ones. But The Weekend Murders, Shadow of Death, aforementioned uh, Night the Evening Came Out of the Grave, The Double, The Bloodsucker Leads to the Dance. So yeah, quite quite a few of these films. Um, yeah, a good looking man and sort of quite adept at adding a, I don't know, a slightly sinister look which makes him a good possible suspect in these yes, films. Yes, suave but sinister. Yeah. Properly a playboy type. Yeah, definitely. He's the father of um, the actor Kim Rossi Stewart. We link between them. I don't know how many people would be familiar with Kim Rossi Stewart's work, but um he was in quite a few like Italian genre films in the eighties and nineties. He worked in you know Lumberto Bava and did a few other bits and pieces. Yeah, wasn't he in Suave's uh, Una Bianca? I think, yeah, I think he was. Yeah, I think you're right with that. I think it might have been. And then we have Giovanna Lenzi as Susan Leclerc, who is perhaps one of the most interesting characters in the film. I believe she's no relation to Umberto Lenzi. I don't know if you know otherwise. No, not that I've not that I managed to find. I think for us, we just hear the name Lenzi, and you can automatically think, oh, Umberto. But um, they did work together yeah. in 1966 on uh, the Euro Spy film, The Spy Who Loved Flowers. But I don't think there's any connection other than that, just that, that they worked together. And as you mentioned earlier, she was married to Sergio Pastore, um, and the pair frequently collaborated together, um, including on 1987's Deliti, in which um, she co-directed and co-wrote the film. I mean, she was somewhat of a writer. She wrote, co-wrote or several kind of films in her career. She wasn't just an actress, which makes her somewhat of an anomaly, really, in the genre. I can't think of too many women that were involved in the kind of production of film. It's usually always in front of the camera. And that's actually, Deliti is kind of considered to be the first Shadow directed by a woman in 1987. Again, I can't really recall anything, any other Shadow directed by women since 
quite something. What's perhaps notable about Delete in relation to Crimes of the Black Cat is that it has a similar premise where victims are killed uh, via the venom of a snake. So we see that idea kind of come back later on in their career working together. Yeah. And I always think, uh, it's, just, it's just a side thing, but I always think Giovanna Lenzi, like, well, particularly in this film, I think she looks a bit like Olivia Coleman. She you does. Really kind of see she that. certainly does. Yeah. She's obviously in all the films by Pistori that I managed to find. And while I haven't put, been able to put my finger on it, you just you just managed to do it for me she does she really does look like i'm glad you think so too because it's one of those things where when i remember when i first saw her i was like well she really looks like her i don't i've not seen a lot of his other i've said i've only seen one of his other films so i wouldn't be able to tell you how much she looks like her in other roles but in this one she she really does yeah and there's something about the cheekbones i think yeah like the facial structure i think yeah Another well-known face is Umberto Rajo, who plays Burton, Peter Oliver's manservant. He gets to do the legwork for his blind employer, and he's the character is also used as a bit of a red herring, with a fair amount of suspicion thrown on him, uh, showing him eavesdropping on conversations and that kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, and I think he even references, doesn't he, a bit like, oh, something about the butler. There's a bit of self-awareness in, in the dialogue at one yeah. point about his character. Always a dependable character actor, I think. People will recognise him from Bird with a Crystal Plumage and The Muck and Tropic of Cancer and Flower with a Petals. Yeah, he reminds me a wee bit of um, Georges Rigaud. Yeah. You know, that kind of, they just seem to be in everything. So it's like, you might not know their name, but you know their, yeah, you know their faces. You certainly know their face. Yeah. No, he's good though. I like him in this. I think he's, yeah, like I said, I like the kind of self-awareness of his character. He's not, he's not in it much. He's not got, you know, like a meaty role or anything, but it's just, it's nice that he's there and how he helps out his um, employer and things. They have quite a nice relationship going on. Good yeah, dynamic. it's always, it's always reassuring to see him in a job. Yeah, I think. definitely. We've got, I mean, Annabella in Contrera who plays Helga, um, so she'll be another kind of familiar face for people. And again, she's one of those actresses that never really was a leading lady, was she? She always kind of played kind of side roles. So you'll might know her from Black Belly of the Tarantula, So Sweet, So Dead, Clap You're Dead if you want a more obscure one, Case of the Bloody Iris. Um, she, she's always good in her roles. Like she, I, I always like her, but I mean, she, she's not. She's not anything. It's not anything remarkable. Because I was, was going to say she's always good in her roles, but that's not true because she doesn't really do that much. So I'll just admit that. I don't last week. I'm like, oh, she's really good. It's like based on what. Yeah. Um, she just seems. To, I don't know if it's just because of like you know this in the case of the bloody iris, but yeah, she plays lesbian characters and things, and sometimes that is like her personality trait in a film is like she's a lesbian, which is very much the case yeah. in. The Crimes of the Black Cat, there's really not much going on other than that. So though I'm mentioning her, I mean, she's not really a character of note. Shirley Corrigan playing Margaret Thornhill really isn't either. I mean, she's there, but these parts are quite underwritten. There's not all that much in these characters. Um, yeah. The, the only funny thing I found out about Shirley Corrigan is that apparently she's born on a yacht on the way to Sweden. Wow, really? That's interesting. <laughs> How'd you get yourself in that situation? She appeared in a few horror films like The Devil's Nightmare and with Paul Nashi and Leon Klimovsky's Dr. Jekyll versus the Werewolf and quite a few softcore sex comedies as mm-hmm. well before leaving the business in the early 80s apparently to work as a PA for a petroleum company. Oh, nice. In, in Rome. I feel like we're going to say that quite a bit over the course of the show. It's just when we talk about actresses, it'll be very much the case of once I hit the 1980s and they, I'm doing my air quotes here, yeah. went past their primes. I was kind of like, uh, it was, yeah, most people left the industry at that point. Yeah, because because they were out of their 20s and their early 30s. So there was not all that much left. Pretty for much. Them. You kind of see the attitude. Most likely the reason. Yeah. Well, and the, and the industry going down. Yeah, kind of well. combination of the two. So I suppose the kind of roles that were available in those sorts of films were few and far between. Yeah, so it's yeah. kind of a case of just moving on. And you, kind of, you still see that attitude a bit with film fans now who'll go, 
Like, I always see it with Dagmar Lysander, strangely, who obviously I watched in that film that I mentioned earlier. And yeah. you hear about people like that. It always seems a bit sad when you hear people in, like, the modern like modern day going, oh, she was a bit past her prime at this point and wasn't taking her clothes off enough or something. But no one, that's, no. I suppose that's just the way the film industry is, isn't it? So Yeah, but it just seems really unfair that they weren't really given much to work with. No, really. and certainly the actors are the ones that had a bit more of a shelf life, if we put it like that, than the actresses. I suppose the last person of note, we meant probably mention would be Renato de Carmine um, as Inspector Janssen. De Carmine did a lot of theatre work, but he also racked up quite a number of film credits and appeared in a considerable number of television series. If you look at his um, film credits, most of them are television series, especially in the 1970s. Um, but he, he was in one other show. He played the commissioner in Yellow, the Cousins, uh, so similar type of role uh, in 1969. But overall, he wasn't really yet an actor particularly associated with the genre. Should we start, start off by talking a little bit about the inspiration for the film? Yes, we will. Like you mentioned before, that it seems like quite a few of the themes and ideas have been, air quotes, borrowed from other yeah. films, let's say. And the obvious film to mention is, due to the blind protagonist, it's obviously Argento's Cat and Nine Tales, which, as you said, had been a massive success in, in 71. But I think probably the biggest influence on Crimes of the Black Cat is an earlier film, Henry Hathaway's 1956 thriller, 23 Paces to Baker Street, where Van Johnson stars as a blind playwright who overhears a conversation about a kidnapping in a London pub, and he sets about solving the mystery with his ex-girlfriend, played by Vera Miles, and his butler. I suppose that one could argue that there are some similarities with Hitchcock's rear window as well, with like a disabled protagonist witnessing a crime and not being believed by the police, but there are some striking similarities between 23 Paces and Crimes of the Black Cats because the initial setup where, where the protagonist overhears the conversation in the bar is pretty much the same. In 23 Paces, it's a pinball machine that stops the protagonist from hearing the conversation. And in Crimes of the Black Cats, it's a jukebox that drowns out the conversation. And of course, similarly, the staff doesn't manage to get a look at the person in question. Later on in the film, the protagonist in 23 Paces is taken to a bombed out building where this blind person is left to navigate the dangers of on his own similarly to the way that Peter is left in the factory also in the final set piece but we'll get back to that one a bit later on it's not only 23 paces to Baker Street that Pastoria continents and Simonelli drew inspiration the fashion house setting recalls Barber's Blood and Black Lace and we all recognise the bird in the background of the, of the phone call which leads to the killer like in Bird with Crystal Plumage like we touched on before the comparison with Cat and Nine Tales is inevitable because of the blind protagonist but while Argento might not be a fan of his own film it could be called his most sort of conventional and by the numbers I personally think that Cat succeeds due to the well-written characters and the great rapport and warmth between Carl Alden and James Francisca's characters. Here, you don't get that kind of relationship. There's not really anybody for the Peter to bounce off. Would you agree with that? I, yeah, I would agree with that. I think, you know, the relationship, as we mentioned earlier, um, between him and Burton, in a more developed script, it might you might be able to kind of forge some sort of relationship there or a bit more heart in the film. But I think largely the relationships between any of the characters are quite like non-existent to be honest and that's one thing that lets the film yeah. down yes yeah, it's, it's not like the genre is really known for having great characterization and wonderfully depicted relationships but i do think you know some of the more successful entries at least try and forge those connections and there's a bit of heart to them even if it's just it's yeah. not in too much of it but yeah i certainly feel like 
Anthony Stephan doesn't really have any connection to anyone in the film. No, I mean, he hardly flinches when he finds out that Paola's been killed and later Margot as well. Yeah, he seems more upset that she's broken up with him at the start than he does when he finds out she's been murdered. And again, maybe that does come back to how we've talked about Anthony Stephan's not the best actor when it comes to emoting. No, I think that's part of it because I think if... I'm not sure who would have been a better fit for this role because it's not really a George Hilton role. I mean, he's not bad in the role, but it's just that that element of it's perhaps a bit underplayed. Uh, again, you could blame that partly to the script. Um, I could see Franco Nero doing it and doing it well. That's making me think of. Um, I think he could. Yeah, because it. it makes me think of uh, the Blue Eyed Bandit, which I know is completely different, but he obviously can do those kind of completely different characters, like playing a different character. Yeah. You know what I mean? But yeah, no, he'd be he'd be quite good. Yeah, I mean, I said Anthony Stephens not not bad in the film, but just that you feel like he would maybe need to show a bit more emotion towards his uh, deceased girlfriend. No, we're not talking some kind of very like over the top, like crying and sobbing, like on the floor type thing. But yeah, he just doesn't really react at all. No, but you just no, don't you get don't. the feeling that he's got this motivation, like I must find out who my ex girlfriend's killer was. That you don't get that impression really at all. It's more like he wants to find out no. for his own, like because he's like on his wee like mystery. It's more because he wants to be like an amateur sleuth than get the truth about his girlfriend. It's interesting, yeah. No, that's true. He, he's more interested in showing up the police than, than actually finding out who, who has killed his girlfriend, yeah. in a way. No, yeah, I'd agree with that. I didn't really think about that too much beforehand, but yeah, talking about it now, it's something that maybe is a wee bit lacking in the film. But even if he's the main protagonist, there are other characters in the film that are more interesting, at least to me. Especially too, I think Francoise is an interesting character. And like you said earlier as well, Susan Clerk, I think there's quite a lot to, to those two. Yeah, I think those characters are the ones that are of particular interest when you look at the film. I mean, I didn't have much to say in my notes for this about Anthony Stephens' character. I mean, he's very much you know, like the substitute for the audience, isn't he? And although it's, it's interesting that he's blind and that's a bit of a different dynamic in terms of how he solves the crimes or how he's kind of working towards solving them. In terms of his character itself, like not a lot. I do think that's I do find, do find it quite interesting how like when he find, found the bodies like of Margot and of um, Paola like how he reacts how he discovers it like he's told by someone else or you know he feels them that's like a bit of a different dynamic you kind of forget that as an audience like oh he's fine so no he won't be able to see like the corpse on the floor yeah. um, and I liked how he was able to you know use his I don't want to call them super senses but you know his heightened senses um for the smell of Susan's character or her kind of strange gait, you know, you hear her footsteps and the strange pattern, right? You know, he's more sensitive to her smell. And those ideas are interesting and they work well in the film. But yeah, I think it's just that as a character, he's an audience substitute and there's not much depth to him. So shall we get into one of the meteor characters then? Talk a little bit about Francoise. Yeah, we could do that. She's obviously the one that ends up being the killer, but I really find her one of the most interesting characters in the film. And unfortunately, we don't get to see that much of her. I really get the sense that the reason why she's not in it more is a sense of misdirection from mm-hmm. the writers. They want the audience to sort of half forget about her. But I really would have loved to see more of her character. I think we definitely need to see a bit more because I think the conclusion and our motivations are just a bit like lackluster. I think if we were just given a wee bit more, then it would be a more successful yeah. film because yeah, I say she does she barely has any screen time in the film. And of course like there's a reason behind that. But then when the reveal does come it just doesn't feel like completely satisfying. And I think that's also because the reveal come I like checked it today on when I was watching it again. And I think the revelation comes like two minutes before the end of the film. And it is like a minute I know I speak quite quickly, but it's a minute like fast talking. 
of this is why she did it at the end and it's like yeah. you kind of think what you have to kind of really think about how that that worked throughout the film yeah it's it's almost like an afterthought that oh we need to have a killer in this as well so let's get motivation out of the way yeah quickly. we'll give you motivation but we won't really expand on it so it doesn't quite work it doesn't necessarily hold up on under closer scrutiny so yeah and i think again it's a shame because i think if there was just a wee bit more in the film to indicate that she's the killer or maybe not even just indicate the killer but her reasoning why what she does when she murders a victim or something then it would be more satisfying yeah. as a conclusion i rewatched the film a couple of times now and I, I watched it this morning and i i noticed i noticed stuff that i hadn't seen before because when when she meets up with victor in the in the fashion mm-hmm. house the first time and he he comes in and he gives her a quick kiss on the cheek and then she goes over to him and she's she's quite obviously leaning in for a kiss and he gives her a quick Peck instead. That's interesting, yeah. So you can see from the beginning that she's more invested in this relationship than he is. Yeah, he's a bit a lot more ambivalent towards her as his partner. Yeah. I think even when we first are introduced to his character, before he even comes on screen, you hear all the kind of uh, dress-making ladies saying, oh, you know, Victor, like, he's so desirable, and they're all really invested in him, and they all want to bed him, and it's yeah. just like she's the kind of icy owner who doesn't, you know, he's not really interested in her, and there's all these other people that are, and they're kind of like, why are they together? You get the sense that it it's sort of the opposite way of, of what it was like in So Sweet, So Perverse, which we discussed last time when it was Jean-Luc Tratignon's character who didn't really manage to get through to Erica Blanc. And here it's Francoise who's not managing to get through to Victor and she wants something more, but she's not getting it from him. No. I just think it's interesting to keep an eye on her during the film because when, when she and Victor talks to the inspector after one of the murders and she says, like, why don't you arrest me for that one when they're discussing oh, it's the murder of Harry, I think, which she has committed. And when she gives Victor the alibi, she comes out with a really brazen lie and it feels almost like she dares the inspector to challenge or question mm-hmm. her. Even just uh, going into her motivations is quite interesting interesting and that relationship between her and Victor and I don't know because it's a bit because the ending is wrapped up rather quickly it's it's not 100% clear because I mean when she talks about when she talks with Victor about his affair in the airport I think it's in the airport she seems rather accepting of it and somewhat understanding which on reflection is either a lie or somewhat of a half truth it's like a question of does she kill Paula due to her involvement with Victor or because she's jealous of what Paula and the other models possess that she no longer has. Because, I mean, that's her, her ire is directed towards the models, not Victor, who she doesn't seem to do anything to, really. I mean, she still no. obviously loves him, and he's still he's not the focus of her frustrations. No, I got, I got the sense that she's sort of protecting or removing any threats to him, to his status as as her man yeah. so to speak does that make yeah, sense yeah no, that makes not? sense I suppose like she doesn't target Victor obviously she targets people like you say that she sees as a threat to their relationship or Victor's faithfulness but she does use his guilt to kind of further serve her twisted killings and then obviously he gets involved and tries to protect her so I don't know I don't know if he tries yeah. to protect her because he loves her or because he feels a sense of duty because it's the reason why she's this way or why she's kind of gone psychotic is because of a car accident that he was responsible for so you kind of got that element to it yeah it is I mean her act of murder is to stop somebody from stealing Victor Mm -hmm. from her but like you say it turns out that it's at least sort of 
partially redundant because he then goes to quite great length to protect her and ultimately loses his life in an effort to protect her. Yeah, exactly. So it's somewhat tragic in a way that she's so focused on stopping her husband from cheating on her, which obviously he did with Paula, but in the end he is faithful to her. But then if that faithfulness comes from guilt, then it's not really genuine, is it? It's difficult to say. I mean, it could be It could be that he's still got feelings for her and that she sort of obviously loves him, but re- rejecting him from a sexual point of view because of her like disfigurement yeah. and him turning elsewhere. Yeah. yeah, because she is a slightly older woman um, and it's interesting to see those ideas of envy and jealousy play out here because she's kind of presented as that. We don't see her as overly bitter in the film because, again, we don't really see much of her, but yeah, that's certainly kind of what the conclusion leads us to believe that she's envious of these women and their bodies and their sexual appeal and how Victor's looking elsewhere and that's why she does what she does. And uh, her feminine body has become disfigured, rendering her somewhat undesirable sexually. And the trauma of her disfigurement and lack of sexual appeal and function triggers her desire to kill, presumably to placate those feelings, because she obviously has some sort of revulsion or disdain for the state that her body's now in. I think it's telling when her dressing gown... No, it's her, it's her coat, isn't it, that gets ripped? Yeah. When, when her coat gets ripped... You see her breasts and they're all scarred and burned, kind of deformed. And that's what we see. And that explains the vicious way in which she targets Margot's breasts in the shower. Because in that sequence, it's it's incredibly violent and she just keeps going for that kind of part of her body. So that's how we see in that scene that jealous rage come out in terms of attacking the part of her body that in herself has been destroyed or disfigured. So I think that's quite an effective way of portraying that kind of link between the jealousy Um, more so than, you know, the other modus operandus of her killings. So I think that, yeah, that exemplifies those feelings of jealousy and inadequacy. I suppose it's in in some ways she's gone through like the existential crisis in much in the same way as a cancer patient go through after a mastectomy, having her breast removed because her identity of a woman is challenged, like you said, and, and something in her snaps when, when she finds out that that Victor has been unfaithful. It's difficult because to get too heavy on this subject because I'm not sure how much is actually in the script here, but I think, like you said, in, in terms of discussion, I think the loss of the perceived womanhood is really interesting and the loss of, of the look that people perceive to be a woman how that would affect a person and in this case it results in murder but like with your criminology background I'm, I'm sort of assuming that it would be highly unlikely that a woman would externalize it and become violent or acting out in a way like this and much more likely to mean depression or a self-destructive behavior yeah i think that's definitely something that yeah it tends to be internalized rather than externalized yeah obviously it's kind of for the the, for the purposes of the film and as we've talked about before they love that kind of pop psychology um, and reasoning behind people going on these like psychotic breaks but yeah in reality i mean I, i can't really recall i mean there will be cases but i can't recall like any cases where someone takes out their frustrations in that manner you'd see kind of more male to female like women have wronged men and then they do things to them or they attack their sexuality and again that's something we see time and time again in in horror cinema or the jalo or the slash or whatever but um overall we don't really see it so much the other way because it doesn't happen so much the other way Um, but there is something quite sad about and tragic about what happened to um, Francoise and how she takes out on no I agree and it's been this is something that I don't think we're going to get into spoilers now for other films but there are other jelly where sort of the loss of beauty or the ability to reproduce is is triggering similar effects isn't it I can think of at least a couple of films where this ends up being the motive yeah yeah no it's certainly like something that you come across a few times in the genre I suppose it's like you can make a assumptions about why why that's the case obviously you know when we look at kind of climate of the time sometimes the threat that women might have presented to men it's kind of yeah. a manifestation of that in some ways and there is some tr- there well there i was gonna say in some truth but there is truth to it that 
there's this Victor's the one that's wronged Francoise but she targets women or she sees women as the problem she sees her own body as the problem and I think that's that way of yeah people seeing it as their own issue or a women's issue where actually you know it's the man's the one at fault but really is Victor paying the price that much I mean I know he eventually comes to his untimely death but it's more of a kind of issue women to women isn't it or she takes yeah. it on herself I mean because she still she still loves him so she she can't really kill him off to punish him because she's in love yeah, with him she doesn't even punish him really in any other way she still wants to kind of be close to him or you know you don't see that much kind of frostiness towards him and she's trying to be the understanding wife and whatever but then she she takes out on the women around her at, at one point I, I thought of a parallel with her and Eva Bartok's character in Blood and Black Lace in that they both run a successful fashion house and they both have an unfaithful partner and the girls are all swooning over him at the studio but Cameron Mitchell's character tries to throw Eva Bartok under the bus and pin the murder on her. Mm-hmm. Victor, on the other hand, seems to keep, goes to quite great length to protect his partner. And like you say, perhaps it's due to the guilt for causing the traffic accident, or perhaps it's due to the fact that he he still loves her on, in, on some yeah, level. Yeah, I certainly think that's true. I think, you know, like, again, we've got this connection between, like, sex and love, but they've been separated somewhat in this scenario where, yeah, yeah she can't perform in the way he wants, and he's not maybe sexually attracted to her anymore, but they still love each other, and they have this kind of warped loyalty to one another despite everything that's going on. Or maybe he's he wants to engage with her, but she's not happy to because of how, how her body yeah, is changed. Yeah, she's got more of a chaste approach. It's, it, again, it's not really um, touched on that much, is it? You don't really know who's... Like, like you said that earlier in the film, that Victor like, rejects her like kiss or whatever. Or not rejects it, but yeah, isn't yeah. really that involved. But other than that, there's not too much in the way of an explanation for that. I'm just thinking as well, you've got that scene no. with all the mannequins... And it focuses on, like, you know, their torso up to their head. So all that kind of thing of mannequin and se- mannequins and sex and disembodied sexuality. And... I, I think, you know, we're, we're like, obviously yeah. an- analysing this in a certain way. I, I don't know if watching the film on a first watch, you'd really gleam all of that. I think certainly on a second watch or repeated watches, you'd maybe pick out more of those components. But I think, yeah, when the bit's kind of tacked on at the end, it's hard to see all of that if you compare this to autopsy for example where quite a lot of time is, is spent on the, in the script i think to f- sort of flesh out simona's character here there's not there's not really an attempt made to flesh out the characters that much this is us sort of looking between the lines a little bit i think yeah i think you know if you've got something like um bird of the crystal plumage and the reveal of the murder and their motivations and their trauma it's like handled a lot better than it is you get less of that psychotic kind of moment in this you you know like when you know the killers reveal to be a woman rather than what they perceive to be a man and they kind of go off on one as a lot of killers do even if they're they're male and they have this big explanation or they go a bit mad and do something outrageous or whatever but here it's you don't get that so much yeah i suppose just you don't see her a lot on screen so you don't get such an impression of her trauma as an audience, you can't really put the pieces together because you're not shown everything. Yeah, and you don't you don't need to be shown everything. That's like, but yeah, you you're maybe not shown enough of it to really effectively put the pieces together. And then the ending, she just throws herself out of the window at the end, which I suppose you could see is like emblematic of her um, trauma. At the end, she just goes off and kills herself. Um, and then obviously yeah. Carlo Vancina lifted that ending and nothing underneath um, in 1985 because it's pretty much. Well, it's not completely identical, but yeah, they're they're very similar. So the other character, notes who would be interesting to talk a little bit about is is Susan Leclerc, mm-hmm. and I'm thinking she that that character was most likely written with 
with Giovanna Lenzi in mind, or at least reserved for her for an, at an early stage, because I don't think that character would have had as much screen time, really, if it was just the Yeah, character. I don't think she would be as developed if as she w- was, or she is. I wonder if Giovanna Lenzi, Lenzi had any input into the script and into the character. Yeah, she might have brought some notes yeah. on at least. Well, she's originally presented as a rather enigmatic character, um, almost mystical, yet nefarious, because we know from kind of the word go that she's involved in the murders. But yeah. She, yeah, she turns out to be the most interesting character in the film. And obviously, you know, knowing the genre, you know she's not going to be the main killer. You know there's going to be some other reasoning behind it. So I suppose the most interesting of her character is what her motivations are and how she's kind of come to be in this situation which is unveiled in quite a nice way yeah it's a, it's a great scene where she seems to have been a or she has been a circus performer before sort of succumbing to drugs and she's now running that rundown pet shop and in this scene where she's where she's in the shop and surrounded by pictures of a younger more more glamorous version of herself with the circus music playing and you can hear the applause and ruminates on her on her past and looking at herself in the mirror and seemingly well seemingly disgusted of what she's mm-hmm. become really yeah no i completely agree you know you see her looking in her wardrobe at all the costumes she used to wear and parking parking back to past that's no longer it is it, uh, yeah so that's what's, what's tragic about her character and she doesn't kill um, due to greed or lust or revenge, um, but for survival and because she's you know so dependent on on her drug addiction, yeah. So she'll do anything for a fix, and despite wrestling with her um, actions morally, because she does seem aware of what she's doing and how it's wrong, and she wants to get out of it, but she can't because you know she is addicted to drugs, and this is the only way that she can fit, feed her habit. And Francoise, she she uses that mercilessly, mm-hmm. and continuously phones her and harasses her, and we see this kind of inner turmoil that she's experiencing as a result. I mean, yeah, like you said about her character as well, the way she looks, and she's very pale and has this gait where they say she looks drunk and smells. I know it's because of the pet shop, but you just get, before you know about the pet shop connection, you get the impression that she's just this bit of a, they say she's 35, shock horror, but you're, you're supposed to you believe that she's an older woman, past her prime, uh, fallen into hard times. It's very yeah. like, socially aware as a film, I guess, because I, I, I know drugs are sometimes touched upon in these films, but not in such a way of like, you know, kind of sympathetic to an addict and the trauma that someone can experience that leads them down that path. No, I, I agree. It's it's not just a plot point. It really feels like it's written into a character, and this character is given a bit more a bit more depth and complexity than either of the other characters. Really, definitely more than than Peter or Margot. Again, it's the the female roles that stands out that are the most well written and the most interesting. Yeah, and I, and I think you know they're they're both relatable in some ways. You can understand their motivations and kind of the path they've gone down and you can see how one event in someone's life can trigger all these I'm not saying it trigger someone to murder, but you can certainly see how it can trigger someone's downfall and then how someone copes with that and either you know they manage to recover and pick themselves back up or they descend further into this unpleasant unhappy life i think um giovanna Lindsay does well in the role yeah certainly and i like that little kind of touch of the circus connection i mean and another it could have really been anything couldn't it because i think the story is that her husband was the proprietor of the circus and she was an animal tamer of some sort and then the lion murdered her husband in a freak accident yeah. and she wrestles with the guilt again you know she wrestles with the guilt that the lion killed her husband it sounds like a ridiculous phrase to say. And then you've got, a vic- <laughs> you've got a victor wrestling with the guilt of killing, well, not killing his wife, but disfiguring his wife with the car. So you can yeah. see the parallels between between the characters and how the guilt, you know, leads them down this path, which is quite interesting. So yeah, you've got similarities in the female characters. But yeah, I like, I like the circus element because I just think it's so like out of left field. Like, you know, in another film it would be 
something far less glamorous or interesting because you could use any you could substitute anything really you know they're you you worked doing this yeah. like in a restaurant and your husband died in a chip pan fire or something it yeah it's good though and it could have been so cheesy but i think it works yeah. quite well i think they do it in a way that works yeah, it's not screen. too labored is it i think it's like just no. the right amount of and i like how the poster for the circus is shown on the wall before you i don't know you may you might have realized the first time you watched it but i didn't realize the first time i watched it when you saw that poster of the connect, I didn't really think that there would be a connection. Then obviously it presents itself. Yeah. So yeah, Pastore definitely expresses sympathy and sensitivity towards her character. And he makes her feel like a real fleshed out person, which really helps the film, I think. You touched upon it earlier, but should we talk a little bit about the, the murder of Margot? Because I think that's by far the most talked about aspect of the film, I'd say. That vicious attack in the in the shower that sort of rivals both the New York um, Ripperin and, uh, and the Monster of Florence uh, films like The Killer Must Kill Again and The Killer Is Still I mean, It is undoubtedly the most shocking moment in the film. Obviously inspired by Hitchcock's Psycho, but just taking the premise to a whole new level. Obviously we see a lot of violence this time around. And it's just it's just really horrible, really brittle. Um, in terms of violence, it's certainly one of the more shocking films of the time period when it comes to that scene. I think what's interesting about it is that the murders before that aren't particularly violent at all. I mean, I don't think you see anything, do you? No. Because the killer's mod- modus operatus in the earlier scenes is to kill their victims by, as we mentioned, dousing a yellow silk shawl in this kind of po- poison, I guess. Is it kind of poison or some sort of substance Substance yeah. that yeah, yeah it it drives this cat insane so when it scratches its victims, its claws have been dipped in some poison so then it poisons them and they have some sort of cardiac failure. Uh, it's quite an elaborate way of killing someone but is. it makes the film... Yeah, it's, it's an interesting one because it's ridiculous, but that's what you kind of like to see sometimes in these films. Uh, but then when we see that happen, I think we just get the flash of the cat's eyes, you know, an extreme close-up zoom shot um, on the victim. And then we just see them, you know, lying dead afterwards. So there's really not any violence in the murders that take place. And then obviously we get to this murder at the end of the film and it's incredibly brutal. Um, and it's just prolonged sequence of uh, slashes and with an open-edged razor. So it's quite sexually violent. It's gratuitous, I guess. And it's hard. It's it's kind of hard to argue that it's not. But while you're unaware, the first time you watch it, like you said, there's a there's a specific reason as for why the killer is is going for for the victim's breasts in this case. So I suppose the scene is effective in terms of it leads. To, it, it connects with the killer's motivations, so it gives you an indication. And when you watch it back, or when you reflect back, you realise that's perhaps why the killing of Margot was so personal. But then she's not that personal with the other women. Arguably, she'd be more savage towards Paula. And I think maybe you mentioned the New York Ripper. Maybe if this film had been made 10 years later, all of the, maybe they would have ditched the cat aspect or made it more, retained the cat aspect and made it more sexually violent in other ways with all the murders. But yeah, this one, strangely, it's just that last murder. I yeah. don't know if that's an awareness of we need more to link the motivation with the murders. Then that's why we get such an extreme end murder. I don't know. It's interesting why that, because it does certainly come out of left field. It certainly feels like the major set piece mm-hmm. of the film, and it feels like it was a lot less time and care was spent on the other killings, because as, you, as you've as you said, they're, they're not nearly as bloody, but, but really they're not nearly as tightly edited as this one, because this is an impressive sequence, even though it's it's a hard watch and it's very brutal, but it's, it's a quite skillfully constructed sequence. Yeah, absolutely. Very suspenseful. I like how we have this shower scene earlier on in the film, 
um, where nothing happens or we think something's going to happen involving um, Francois's character and then it turns out that she's the killer yeah. in this one, in this shower scene. It's quite a nice callback. Yeah. Yeah, it's a nice That's bit of suspense. True. Get that scene. Obviously, we're kind of aware because, like, again, thanks to Alfred Hitchcock, we're always aware when we're in a bathroom and there's somebody naked and vulnerable. Yeah. Um, so yeah, you, can, you know it's coming, but I think as well, you know it's coming, but you don't anticipate how violent it's going to be from your knowledge of the other murders and your knowledge of Psycho. When I watched that sequence, it's quite funny because the film is actually SAS, the Scandinavian Airlines, is thanked in the credits. And it's just interesting to me to imagine the reactions of like the upper <laughs> management who was happy to see a, a SAS poster up every now and then on the wall or something. And then this <laughs> shower sequence comes on. And it's it's quite hard to see an airline or any other company for that matter, like supporting yeah, what the film be associated like this. With that. These days, <laughs> I didn't catch that in the credits actually, but I did notice the poster. Like there was a poster, I think, up at one point for that. So that's interesting yeah, that they were yeah. involved. Uh, they probably didn't pre-approve this. Probably script. not, and they probably maybe they only watched the first half an hour. Like that's fine. Just a just a cat, no yeah, violence, exactly. and that happens. But I think it lives up to that. Like we talked about last time, you said uh, uh, like a murder sequence every thirteen minutes or something. I think it pretty much. Yeah, lives it's got up that, that golden kind of ratio or whatever slightly formulated yeah. in that way i think it ticks along rather nicely though as a film i don't know about you i just i, I feel like it's always engaging as you go through i don't think it sags too yeah. much at any point it's well put together and um you can have issues with the with the ammo of the the cat killings and stuff but like you say it ticks along nicely you're never really bored and i mean there are bits and pieces in this which ticks the boxes in terms of what you expect a jello to be I, i'm a sucker for darkroom sequences mm-hmm. you get one of those and i love a train like a like abandoned train station when we get one of those yeah, always effective. And of course, a little interesting nods like um, Peter, who's working as a composer, is scoring a lizard in a woman's skin. Yeah, no, that's uh, like, and it, when I first saw that, I was quite surprised when I, when I saw that because I, I couldn't really recall any other films of that period that so like overtly mentioned another film of that period. And thinking to what you said earlier, you mentioned that it was the same producer. Right? Yeah, I'm to produce that as well. Obviously, yeah. that's probably the connection there. It made me think a bit of Barbarian Sound Studio, actually, how he does the scores for um, films. Also, that came after, just kind of an observation that it's, it's, it's a, kind of a wee meta element in the film, which you don't typically see those meta elements till a bit later, you know, more at like the 80s. No, often often when films are shown in horror films or in Jally, it's often mm-hmm. westerns. Uh-huh. It's not like a self-aware moment. Not like It's not so much of a wink to the audience at that point. I mean, late, no. yeah, in later films, you see those winks all the time with people referencing older films and lifting direct sequences out and things, but not so much at this time. So it stands out. But it's a, ni- a nice bit for fans to see. So in the end, it's it's the photographs, really, that turns out to be the solution to the mystery because because Margot sees Victor dropping a photo of Francoise and Susan together. And it feels they're slightly cheating here because the audience doesn't get a chance to see this significant yeah. photo, not even for a split second. So we're, we're kept in the dark as to what the motive is without any means to figure it out. And this usually is a sign of slightly sloppy Yeah, writing. that's the thing. If you guess who the murderer is, you're, I don't think you're, you'll guess who she is based on things that have been revealed in the plot it's more like because you're thinking oh well it can't no. be that person so it has to be this person but you don't have the evidence and like I said before it's not you have to be spoon-fed evidence you don't need it to deli- deliberately spell it out but it'd be nice to have a wee bit of something 
to feel like, yeah, I've got there. Yeah. No, but like, like in the Gestalt script, you can always mm-hmm. work it out. He's not, he's not cheating and he's quite, he's quite adamant that you shouldn't cheat in that way. You should give the audience a, at least a sort of a fighting chance to be able to figure it out. Yeah. But you, you can't, he's, you know, Yeah, really. Gestalt is a lot more clever with it. Although so that's just made me think of something um, that's in my notes. Something I did notice was in the, in the scene where we're first introduced to the fashion house and the characters that um, are working within it, one of the models, I can't remember which model it is now, but she's modeling a red dress and she comes, or it's, it's kind of like fabric. It's not quite a dress yet. And she comes out and Anne Francoise says to yeah. her, oh, it would be much better in silk. Or change the fabric, it'd be better in silk. Oh, uh, yeah. Silk shawl, silk dress, she also has that. Uh, but, you know, that's not exactly like a big, you know, I don't think you could get it just from that, but I just thought on a rewatch, it's quite interesting that she mentioned silk. Yeah, no, that didn't register with me. So good. There's some little little bits of business in there yeah. as well. It's probably wasn't, it probably wasn't even inten- intentional saying that. Yeah. <laughs> And I also thought I'd, I'd mention that the ending, just before the denouement, is basically crib from 23 places to Baker Street as well, where the blind protagonist is hiding in his flat as the killer stalks him and trying to confuse them with, with music uh, or recordings anyway. I haven't seen that, so I thought that bit was really clever in the film. I really liked that bit of misdirection and how he was able to ensnare the killer, but obviously it was lifted then from, from that. Yeah, but I suppose not not everybody will have yeah, seen exa- it. So, exactly. Yeah, it can it can stand out, but there's a recently released Blu-ray of 23 Places from Baker Street out on Kina Lorbo, so do check that out because that film is worth yeah, seeing I'll as be well. checking it out based on this. So let's talk a little bit about the production history. And um, as previously mentioned, the film was produced by Amati and his Capitolina Produzioni Cinematografici. And it was shot during April and May 1972 on location in Copenhagen uh, at Cinecittà Studios. And there's some good use of the Danish capital's locations. Niham, the central station, and some other fairly easily recognisable places show up but I remember the first time watching it and think, waiting for the amusement park Tivoli oh, to yeah. show up but I missed out on using that location and it wasn't a big budget feature you can sort of tell the fashion out setting seems like a budget version compared to the lavish looks of the Christian or couture fashion house in Blood and Black Lace but I'm sure you'll get into that later on Rachel mm-hmm. and the film was shot by Guglielmo Mancori who also shot So Sweet So Perverse that we talked about in the last episode Episode. And he seems a bit more willing to experiment this time around, and he uses he uses crash zooms quite a lot, awesome, yeah. and there's some uh, kaleidoscopic effects and uh, quite a few low angle shots as well. Was there anything that stood out for you in terms of the cinematography? Uh, well, you touched upon the ones, yeah, particularly the kaleidoscopic shots and the the first sequence in the fashion house when Susan's stalking um, room three. I think it's just a bit unfortunate that you have those really nice shots in that part of the film, but I didn't feel like the cinematography. It's the mid to the end part of the film. Is it dynamic? Is that it's the cinematography we saw in that scene? Yeah, I think that's the standout moment for me. But I didn't really feel like the cinematography was super impressive overall. No, which was more or less the feeling that we had from So Sweet, So Perverse that it was it was serviceable but hardly breathtaking or outstanding. Yeah, I think So Sweet, So Perverse for me had a bit more of interest in it, like than this one. I think out of the three films we've talked about now, I'd say that it's the least 
imaginative or dynamic in terms of cinematography. Yeah. It's very much of its time. You know, you mentioned those zoom shots and things. They are quite typical of the era. The editing was done by Vincenzo Tomasi, who was another prolific editor, with, and he's got nearly 100 credits to his name. He edited A Lizard in a Woman's Skin and Zombie 2 and New York Ripper, as well as Cannibal Holocaust and a whole slew of Polisioteschi. And he uses this slightly peculiar editing style in this one, where the, during the murders, where he repeats a sequence in rapid succession, like when Helga falls over and when she's when she's attacked by the by the cat. I can't remember having seen that effect all that many times before. Yeah, and it's used a lot. Like, like you say, pretty much every time there's a murder, it's that same exact sequence. As we've touched upon, the film's fashion house setting is clearly indebted to Mario Bava's Blood and Black Lace. And of course, the fashion house in general is prevalent throughout the genre, especially at this point. Um, and can be seen in films such as The Red Queen Kills Seven Times um, and Strip Nude for Your Killer, which came out slightly later in 1975. And of course, modelling in general is very commonplace in the Jalo, and we often have model protagonists or scenes in which fashion photography is taking place, such as in the case of the Bloody Iris and Death Walks at Midnight. Whereas previous trends we've discussed in relation to 60s Jalo, uh, such as the Yacht Jalo, um, seem to have fallen somewhat out of favour by the 1970s or at this point in the 1970s. And um, we see the modelling and glamour aspect of these films um, really ramped out throughout the 1970s and onto the 80s, where it becomes perhaps even more prevalent, perhaps due to the push towards an even more consumer-based society and the rise of the supermodel and in certain Italian fashion houses such as Moschino. And that's evident in films like Delirium and Nothing Underneath, which we mentioned earlier. And all those films, of course, are indebted to Blood and Black Lace, um, but they take ideas from the earlier fashion focusali as well um, and reinvigorate them. Um, but the prevalence of the fashion house and model protagonists and characters um, is obviously because you know it looks good, it's aesthetically pleasing, it's a way of having actresses and certain clothes that appeals to you know women and men because various states of undress or fashion forward um, outfits and then it's quite a glamorous location it serves well in terms of how we connect characters um, to the plot. But I suppose there's, there's the kind of the other side of it as well other than the aspirational aspect because these films are both a celebration and a critique of modernity and the way that kind of society was moving. Um, so this fixation with fashion and the superficial kind of comes into play and then Especially in regards to the crimes of the black cat, we see that this um, fixation with superficiality and beauty and things uh, comes into play with the character of Francoise when she obviously can't be the way that she wants to be and how she feels threatened by these younger, um, glamorous models. So even though the stuff, even though the elements of these films are very glamorous and interesting and engaging for viewers at the time and now, it's not solely just used for window dressing there often sometimes are larger themes at play here and um, but yeah saying all of that despite its fashion house setting the crimes of the black cat really isn't overly concerned with the glamorous world of fashion and when we compare it to some of the other films of this kind um i wouldn't really say it's a showcase of fashion in the same way as films like the red queen kills seven times um which features long sequences of fashion photography and modeling and the same for blood and black lace where you have these like moments of modeling and fashions are really showcased in the case of the crimes of the black cat it's more of a backdrop and a way of linking characters together and then as well like as I mentioned that theme of connecting the idea of beauty and fading beauty and things like that together with uh, the film and um, so very much focusing on the veneer and the illusion and the artifice of, of the fashion world in regards to Francois's character. In terms of the fashions themselves again I wouldn't say they're particularly interesting um, as it can be rather cold in Denmark um, we see plenty of outerwear and we, we see 
Francois in her fur coats, which are obviously a symbol of wealth and status. We also see Wendy in a zebrant coat, which feels like a nice bit of costuming in light of the animal slash circus theme at play in the film. Susan's white cloak and eye pendant are obviously the standout items of fashion in the film. And the cloak gives her this enigmatic quality and juxtaposed nicely against the killer's traditional shallow attire of a black mac and hat. And I absolutely love the distinctive eye pendant that Susan wears. And that's a symbol of her character's knowledge of the truth, as well as ideas about morality and her moral conscious so as we've touched upon earlier and then you've got the yellow silk shawls which are another example of a fashion item uh, interwoven into a series of murders in a shadow which you know other examples would be like torso in the scar for murder rock and the hat pin but I'm sure there's plenty of other examples that just don't spring to mind at the minute and yellow's obviously referenced in the title in relation to the silk shawls what we see the colour punctuate the film in other ways like in the yellow beetle that's driven um, Margot's yellow hat so we have those wee flourishes of yellow that connect to the film's title um, and just one other thing that I picked up in terms of the locations in the film um, at one point Margot and Peter eat at the Purple Grill I don't know if that's the actual name of the restaurant or if it even is a real restaurant um, but it's a rather late 60s early 70s looking restaurant with this black decor and vibrant pops of reds um, but what's quite nice about the restaurant is that there's a large indoor fountain which features a golden mermaid, which is obviously a reference to Copenhagen, uh, which of course is the home of Hans Christian Andersen. Uh, yeah. So it features, and obviously Copenhagen features a similar statue at the waterfront. But yeah, there's a statue like that in the background. That's maybe a subtle nod. I yeah, didn't see that. Just, I just kind of happened to glance it because it's like, is that? A f- I was looking at it and I was going, is that a fountain? And then I was like, oh, there's a, I'm sure there's a mermaid on the fountain. Speaking of restaurants, by the way, that the other one that Peter visits mm-hmm. in the beginning where he overhears the conversation, it's still there. Oh, wow, really? That's, the, um, oh, that's fascinating. Yeah. I'll have to go back to Copenhagen and have a visit. That's exactly. cool. And I suppose architecturally, it's, it's very clear that we're in Copenhagen, isn't it? I mean, for us. <laughs> if you've been to Copenhagen, you're certainly going to recognise yeah. it. Yeah, and it... it it's, it's nice because it possesses that sort of icy Nordic feel in the film. It's very different because obviously the films yeah. that we've talked about prior to this um, were set in Rome slash Florence with Autopsy and Paris and So Sweet So Perverse. So it's a very different location. Just kind of exemplifies the international um, fla- uh, the international flavour of, of the giallo. And what's nice as well is yeah. the characters are actually in Copenhagen, like you said, that it was filmed in Copenhagen. And you can tell because other giallo that are set in places, you don't see the characters interact that much with the, the landscape or the exteriors. So most of it is done on a sense on a sense stage, but here you see characters stalking through the streets and you see various landmarks and buildings. So I think that's a quite nice aspect of the film as it does feel like you're in Copenhagen if you know what Copenhagen's like. I'm quite excited to talk about the score because um, it's actually one of my favourite aspects about the film. I rank the main theme, Yellow Silk, with sort of dramatic piano and upbeat lounge style and scattering vocals as one of my favourite giallo themes. Oh, wow. Okay, so it's really up there for you. Yeah, it's really up there for me. I think it it sort of encompasses all the aspects of scores for Jelly that I'd mm-hmm. really love. I don't know, it's, it seems somewhat similar to a Bruno Nicolai score to me that is quite upbeat and quite positive, as opposed to like Morricone, who, as I've mentioned before, is sort of a little bit more a sense of melancholy there. Yeah. And the score was composed by Emmanuel De Sica, who's the son of the Italian actor and Oscar-winning director Vittorio De Sica. Oh, and, um, right, okay. Yeah, so Emmanuel had studied at the Academia Nazionale di Santa Cecilia with Bruno Moderna, who scored Death Laid an Egg, and he made his debut for his father's film, A Place for Lovers, in 1968, when he was just 19. 
2014. And then four years later, he, he wrote the score for Crimes of the Black Cats. I think it's an interesting score because there are quite a lot of different influences that you can hear. You can sort of hear the bossa nova influence. There's a rock theme that's playing on the jukebox. You can hear jazz, you can hear classical, and as we've mentioned, even some circus music thrown in for good measure. So quite a few obviously variations of that yellow silk themes but also some more dramatic themes with ominous strings and there's even a ragtime track on there as well so i don't think this the soundtrack is available to stream but it was released on cd with carlo maria cordio's score for killing birds and the cd still seems to be available if anybody wants to pick it up and Desica didn't he didn't score any other jelly he's probably most well known for genre fans for his score for Delamorte mm-hmm. Delamore. yeah he passed away five years ago unfortunately at the age of 65. Fairly young then. Yeah, fairly young. I didn't realise he was the son of um, Tasika. I, I, it's obvious with the name, but I just never really thought, I never looked into it, I never really thought about it. The film received its censorship visa with a 14 <laughs> certificate on August 8, 1972, and it was released a few days later on August 12th. It did well at the box office, making 571 million lira. As I think we mentioned before, the best performing giallo of that year was Lucio Fulci's Don't Torture Duckling, which made a billion, 125, and then followed by Armando Cristino's The Dead or Alive with 953 million lira. So launched at 846. But this film wasn't that far off the top tree, and it, it definitely made this money back, and I think it probably was a nice little earner for Amati. And it seems to be released in the UK if a few years later on because it was reviewed in the monthly film bulletin in 1976 where it was called a mildly entertaining thriller can't argue with that post crimes of the black cat Pastori had a couple of projects lined up there was mention of him wanting to direct a project about the last days of Mussolini where he intended to cast Giovanna as the female lead and either Rod Steiger or Marlon Brando oh, wow, as okay. Mussolini but I think that was probably more of a like wishful thinking yeah I'd find it very hard to believe like that they would someone would sign off on her co-starring against someone like Brando well never know and especially with the budget he was working on but that project obviously never got even close to getting off the ground. A more realistic project was another Jallo, which wouldn't have been surprising considering this did fairly well. So it was reported towards the end of 1972 that Pastori would direct a film called Four Locusts in Evening Dress. It was purported to star Spanish actress Aurora Bautista, who had appeared in 1969's uh, La Bambola di Satana, Satan's Doll. And that was supposed to be shot in Amsterdam for International Film Company. In February 1973, it was reported that the film would have a March 7th start date and that it would star American actor Robert Alder and Janet Leenan. I haven't been able to find any further info, so I'm not sure if the production actually started and was never finished, or if it was finished and shelved. Clearly it was never released, but I don't think it was actually yeah. made that yeah. film, which is a shame, because it would have it would have been interesting to see him making a jalo. Yeah, in, it in sounds Amsterdam. like an interesting title and cast and I suppose it's one of those things, again, a project that falls through, but obviously The Crimes of the Black Cat was popular enough for him to go for making another one. There was actually another jalo project that was 
mentioned, slightly later on in 1973, a project reported as Asette Passi L'Assassino, with the English title as Seven Steps from Murder. Reportedly, this was supposed to be a German TV film, but again, I can't find any further mention of it. And obviously, not having a German title makes it quite difficult to, to look into it further. But so, if we have any German listeners, you're more than welcome to start digging in the archives to see if this film was actually made. Yeah, we'd love to know because, yeah, it'd be interesting. Yeah, because he wants in a bit of a hiatus. His daughter Laura was born in 1973, and I'm not sure if that made him take some time off, but instead of making another Jalo, he ended up making a film called Cuella Vedo, uh, Watch Out for the Widow, and it was a comedy written by and starring Giovanna that was released in 1975 to fairly sort of mediocre box office that wasn't a big hit. I've seen that film, and it's it's obviously difficult to see a, a comedy in Italian without any subtitles to really get a handle on of how good it is. But it's, it's very professional looking and fairly good production values, and it looks like a proper film, much like Crimes of the Black Cats. They then took a sort of extended break from the business, and Pastori worked the precedent for the Union of Writers of Film and Theatre, and he spent quite a few years away from filming before returning in 1982 with, he made uh, an unreleased children's film called Pinil Monello, and the film that you previously mentioned, Apocalisse di un Terremoto. It could be described as a melodrama of a man looking for his girlfriend who may or may not have disappeared during an earthquake. And he also directed a, a Henrik Ibsen adaptation, La Donna del Mare, and a film about mercenaries behind enemy lines in Afghanistan that was filmed in Italy. And then his last film, the 1987 Giallo, Delitti. Out of these films, I've seen two. I've seen Apocalypse and Delitti. They're a long way away from these earlier productions. Pastorium went from making these perfectly adequate films in terms of the technical side to making these films in the early 80s with, or in the 80s with ultra low budgets. And he couldn't really realise his ideas and the production ends up feeling far less professional and really quite amateurish in more or less all aspects. I mean, both direction and pacing and staging and blocking the cinematography and the editing but his connections to secure him some talent like his good friend Giorgio Ardison Gianni Day who you might recognise from uh, Giallo in Venice and he also had composers such as Salvio Cipriani and Carlo Rusticelli but th- these were a far cry from his earlier films and like you said Delitti is credited to Giovanna Lenzi but it, it has been sort of at least co-directed by Sergio as well sadly he passed away in a heart attack just before the, the premiere of Delitti at the Fiamma Cinema in Rome in September 1987. So he really, he died at the cinema, which is really sad. That's probably the perfect way to go if you're in film. What is really sad as well is that his filmography is so hard to, to see. I mean, it's really only Crimes of the Black Cats that's been has been given a sort of proper release and that's not even in a in a restored version. So I'd, I'd love to see it, sort of a retrospect or some appreciation for Pastore's work as well, not to having been yeah. forgotten. So. That's the thing with, you know, for all the well-known directors out there, there are so many directors like Pastore who just have very limited, well, I was going to say release, but accessibility to the film is pretty much non-existent, bar a few, because we've seen the exact same ones by him. I mean, I think Delete is pretty, if yeah. you, it's pretty easy to see if you want to see it. Apocalypse, Apocalypse yeah. so not so much. Very hard to see that one. Um, and then pretty much impossible for the rest of them. So again, with doing this podcast, I guess we hope that we raise some sort of awareness of other directors and their filmographies and yeah it can be frustrating if if you like somebody's work and can't seek out what else they've done but hopefully that awareness might lead to you know a discovery not that I'm saying we'd be responsible for that but you know like it's 
awareness of it. You never know. Things might pop up and be found. Shall we try to wrap up some final thoughts about Crimes of the Black Cat? I think the Crimes of the Black Cat is a rather nice example of a lesser-known golden period shadow. I mean, it ticks along rather nicely and for the most part is well executed. I think there's a few plot points that could have been refined a bit um, in terms of like killer's motivations and some other aspects and um, maybe the characterization of um, Anthony Stephen's character. And maybe the murder set pieces for some people are a little bit repetitive. And I think if you're going into this film looking for our gentle style set pieces, you might be a little bit disappointed because they are fairly repetitive. Um, but the imaginative, the imaginative modus operandi of the killer is really enjoyable um, and a little more inventive than what we've, we're used to in the genre, at least. Albeit a bit far-fetched. It's a film that's got some interesting characters. Um, and despite some of my own issues with the killer's reveal, I feel like the story's characters feel a little bit more authentic than some other jolly of the time. Um, the character of Susan Leclerc in particular feels like an anomaly, but um, in the best possible sort of way. So I think it's definitely worth checking out. As I said, it's a good example of um, a lesser-known golden period shadow, and it has a lot of the kind of beats that we associate with the genre and a lot of the tropes. So if you're kind of invested in the tropes of the genre, then you'll be well served by a film like this. And again, it stands up to repeat repeat viewing. You know, it, it does stand up for a second watch. It certainly does. I think it's a good. I'd say it's a fairly good place to if you just sort of done Argento, Martino, Fulci and you want to continue and watch something else, then most people will be familiar with the sort of style and this is very much a black clad killer with a with a straight racer type jello. So although it's quite I guess you could call it quite derivative and there are a few not that many original ideas in the film. I'm I'm fond of it. I mean it's few would call it a classic, it's more like a mid level entry or something, but it, it does pretty much exactly what it says on the tin i think it holds together reasonably well and like i say some interesting characters and those new to the genre will find plenty to savor here i think yeah i think it's like as you said it's a good entry point once you've done the more well-known directors i'd say if you're kind of going along the lines of miraglia and ercoli and people like that then you probably want to check out something like crimes of the black cat i think it sits quite nicely in that when you're wanting to watch things that are typical of what you've experienced before but maybe a wee bit different or you're okay with it being of lesser quality before you start going out to the ones that are really um, start to play a bit more with the form or a bit looser in their connections to what you perceive to be a shallow. That sounds like a good way to end this, Mm -hmm. I think. Yeah, so obviously in last month's podcast, we told you about our competition and that was to win a copy of Jimmy Gonzalez's superb audiovisual mix. Last night, a DJ took my life. So I've drawn a name out of the hat or rather put into a generator on the internet. And the winner is Rob Jack. So congratulations, Rob. We'll be sending you a DM to get your address and we'll get that prize sent out to you. And for this month's prize, uh, we have another copy of Jimmy Gonzalez's um, Last Night a DJ Took My Life. And for this month's prize, uh, we have another copy of Jimmy Gonzalez's um, Blu-ray mix to give away. So to be in with a chance of winning that, um, please use the hashtag FragmentsPod on social media, so Facebook or Twitter, and we'll go through them and, as I said, put them into a hat, put them into a generator and pick a winner for next month. And if you want to know more about Jimmy's mix, then you can head over to Silo wave which is spelled p-s-i-l-o wave all one word um and that'll give you details about it and i think there's like a trailer or something so we urge you to check that out yes yeah, so that's next in this competition and that's if you're in europe and if you're in the states head over to diabolic dvd and make sure you pick up a copy 
um, along with some other great stuff that you can get from them. So we have a little bit of news about the podcast to share with you. Uh, so we're going to be launching a patron for Fragments of Fear within the next month. And we'd just like to stress that the podcast will always be free and free of advertising. Um, but the patron will be a way of bringing bonus content as well as giving people a chance to show us a bit of support, which will help with our hosting costs and materials. And we completely understand if you're not able to, and that's absolutely fine. It's just if you want to show some support, this is a way of doing it. It's a way of getting kind of some bonus content that we're going to produce and outside of you know the fundamental aspect of the show which is to concentrate on obscure shadowly um and you can always still show your support even if you don't donate by downloading the show listening giving us a rating and a review on itunes or sending a message and tweet or whatever spreading the words so let's talk a little bit about so the bonus content in the Patreon episodes will be different from the main content of the show. We'll probably be covering a selection of topics that we've already discussed between ourselves, um, just depending on what we decide to do. We might talk about other Italian genre films outside of Chalet, um, and different projects like television series or things like that, um, figures in the industry, themes and ideas within these films. So that's what these episodes will really be focusing on. And we'll be trying to get one out a month um, on top of this show here um, but again it's completely up to you whether you want to donate or anything but that extra content will be available yeah we see the bonus content as a as a chance for us to being a bit looser with the format and talk a little bit about possibly jello adjacent films instead rather than just straight jelly but if the thing you want to listen to is us talking about lesser discussed jelly you don't have to worry because they'll all stay here for free yeah, that's always going to be available for people. It's not going to be put behind a paywall or anything like that. This is just, as Peter said, a chance for us to talk about films that we feel don't really fit the remit of the podcast or topics that we can't really go into in more detail. Because we we touch upon so many interesting aspects and then we both kind of say to each other, should we like move on now or like maybe we're going on a bit too much? And I think as well, we don't want to compare films too much in the podcast. We don't want to compare and contrast because people might not have seen that film or they might only be interested in the film in question so it's just a way of expanding some of our discussions or looking in more detail at topics and we'll be sure to get the word out on social media when it launches as well so you can we'll have the link there as well for you and there are a few people that we would like to give some shout outs to as well isn't that really true? Yeah, so lots of people have kindly given us reviews and contacted us and we really want to kind of express our gratitude towards them because it does genuinely mean a lot because we appreciate people are busy and it's nice when people take time out of their day to like help us and like help promote us and support us. Uh, so we'd like to thank Joel Cairo, Jesper Viking, Bill Ackerman, um, and we don't know your names, but we know your screen names. So well, it could be worse. And now Taz won. Thank you all so much for leaving reviews of the podcast on iTunes. It's really nice to see those positive views, and they were um, positive reviews, and they were so lovely and um, complimentary. Not that we're saying you have to be really nice about us, but it, it means a lot when you put the work into the show and find that people really enjoy the content and then take the time to leave a review. So thank you guys so much for that. Yeah, thank you so much for those fantastic reviews. I can't believe we've got reviews. Yeah. <laughs> and if, if, if you want to leave a review, then please do. Like, we'd appreciate that. Or if you can't be bothered, which I appreciate because it's like my whole life, um, you can give us a quick five-star review or four or three or two or one, but preferably five um on on itunes (laughs) so you can leave us a review like that takes two seconds and that's always helpful we'd also really like to thank ian hill who sent us an amazing email um about autopsy after our first episode and it was incredibly detailed he hit on so many interesting points um so many things that we brought up in the show like he offered his own perspective on them um and you could really tell like how passionate ian is about these films and how much they mean to him and 
just really insightful commentary from him. It's really nice to hear from people and to hear their own thoughts about the films that we talk about and how they interpret them and to see commonalities between our thinking. So thank you very much, Ian. It's very much appreciated. We both took quite a lot of time to sit and read it and talk about it. So yeah, thank you. Thank you, Ian. We've talked before in this podcast about how community is really important to us and we want to engage with other people. So we'd just like to give a shout out to some other podcasts, um, in particular Nasty Pasty podcast, um, very kindly uh, mentioned us in the episode about was it the black belly of the tarantula and and a blade in the dark so thank you so much for that really appreciate it and we'd like to give a shout out to the screaming queens who um are great and we really like what they do and we really appreciate their perspective on horror cinema and coming out from a kind of a queer lens so we just like to say thank you we really like you guys and we know johnny's always listening to us so thank you johnny yeah johnny's been super supportive so thank you yeah it means a lot when it comes from someone who's been like podcasting a long time and people take the time again to listen it's really nice so thank you yeah and Rachel, of course, left the Swedish one to me. <laughs> so a big shout out to, to Jesper Berg from Interesse Antiknai, a Swedish podcast about film, which is brilliant. So if you if you do understand Swedish, you should give it a listen. And they've been doing this for a long time as well. So thanks for the shout out, guys. And as always, you can follow us on social media, Facebook, Fragments Pods, and Instagram, Fragments Pod as well. Or you can reach us on Twitter, Rachel underscore Nisbet or Senor Ward. Or you can reach us by email as well at fragmentspod at gmail.com. And as always, our fantastic theme music is by Ozarks. And you can find all their music at castleozarks.com. Check them out. I think that's it for today, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, we've covered everything we wanted to. I'm sure I'll lie awake at night tonight remembering some minor detail. Um, yeah. yeah, as always. As always. We, always <laughs> we always record this and then later on we think, oh, we didn't mention this or we've got to, to say this. But hopefully, yeah, if there's anything that you think we've missed, give us a shout out on social media um, and let us know. Um, yeah, thank you so much for listening. And we've both really enjoyed talking about this film. It's nice to do a golden period shadow and hopefully people have seen this one or it's a bit more accessible for people. Yeah, and we'll be back with a new episode in about a month. In 2020. Also. In 2020. Yeah, so. so until then, thank you very much for listening. And thank goodbye. you. Bye. Good. Okay, that went well.